Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 29. We're in a rather large chapter where there's 71 verses to it. Okay, 71 verses. And next week we're going to begin in verse uh, 30. He's going to be talking about the bread of life. And I'm going to have to divide that one up, that sermon, which doesn't end until 58, divide it up into two sections. So this morning's passage, verses 16 through 29, provides the context for which Jesus is going to be, or from which Jesus is going to teach uh, his bread of life sermon. Okay? From walking on water in verses 16 through 21, to the gathering of the crowd in verses 22 through 27, to their dialogue, a short little dialogue about works. Jesus is leading them into a dialogue, a conversation about him being the bread of life. All this is leading towards that. And it was just too much to handle in, on one Sunday morning. So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, I mean the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Bread of Life in detail. All right, all right, I just want to make sure you were listening. Yeah, right. Wow. Whew, yeah, that's right. So next couple of weeks, we're going to look in detail at the Bread of Life sermon, but for now, we're going to look at the context leading up to it. So let's stand. If you don't have your Bibles open, open them up to John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 16 through 29, starting in verse 16. Now, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat that they had already gone with, okay? But that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, ignoring their question, notice that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all scripture is inspired by you. It is therefore profitable. And so God, I pray it would be profitable in our own hearts and our own souls that it would instill a more deeper, richer trust in you this morning. 
that your word, as Isaiah says, will not come back to you void. We know the book of Hebrews says that the word of God is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, God, I pray that it would have its sharpening effect upon our lives. And with the scapel's sword, with the scapel's knife, conform us a little bit more into the image of Jesus Christ. Could conform us to his will, his ways, his desires, his righteousness, O Father. O God, I pray that through the power of your spirit, that would be a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I got a simple three-point outline this morning that goes along with the text. Actually, if it comes out of the text. Point number one is Jesus walks on the water. Jesus walks on the water. It's real simple, right? Verses 15 through 21. And in that short little passage, we learn about the nature of Christ. Point number two is going to be about, he warns them about them following him. He warns them of their wrong, bad motive. Therefore, we learn about the nature of man is going to be the second point. So the first point, we learned about the nature of Christ. The second point is we're going to learn about the nature of man. And the third point, the necessity of faith, which is going to be the last couple of verses, 28 and 29. Now, I just want you to remember that at the end of uh, where we left off last time, in verse 15, Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. And so he withdrew again to a mountain himself alone, not even with his disciples. Okay? They wanted to take him by force to make him king. And that's what caused Jesus to withdraw, to go to a mountain, to be alone, obviously to get away from the crowd. Again, their motive was their what? 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 Wrong. Okay? This is going to build, okay? We're going to have a lesson at the end of this point by itself. However, that evening, according to verses 16 and 17, the disciples went down to the sea, okay? They went down to the sea, got in a boat, and headed to Capernaum. And the text says that it was what? Dark. And the winds were causing the waves. So it's dark. They can't see very far. And you got the, it's cloudy. You got the waves, the wind. And here's what's going on. I've got this beautiful map up here for you, okay? This is the Mediterranean Sea over here. This is Israel. This is the Dead Sea. This is called the Jordan River. This is the Sea of Galilee. And basically, they're crossing from here to here. If you look at the back of your Bibles, it's kind of it's like a kidney-shaped little piece of water called the Sea of Galilee. But they're going across here. And the winds from the Mediterranean Sea would come across and hit those and oftentimes create storms in the Sea of Galilee. And so if they're going from here, Tiberias, to here to Capernaum, and the winds are blowing this way, it's going to take a lot of force for them to stay on course, isn't it? That's what's going on. So they got, they're in the storm. In verse 18, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So Jesus is not even in this scene. The people are not in this scene. You just have his disciples in a boat that are in this scene. Now, Matthew also gives this account, and he gives a fuller account of what's going on here. He adds that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. You guys go on. I'm, I'm going to take care and disperse this crowd. I'm going to go to the mountain, and then I will basically catch up with you. That's what's going on here. When you add Matthew's account with John's here, Mark also shares the same account as well. And as I said, 
by the way, the Sea of Galilee was like 600 feet below sea level. So you had the winds and they would dip down and create such storms at times. So the movement of that air flows across suddenly, creating big storms. So it's dark, it's windy. Jesus is not with them. The waves are tossing, according to verse 8, as everything began to get stirred up. The sea began to be stirred up. So they were straining to keep the boat on track. And then guess what happens? Verse 19, then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, but they didn't know it was him at first. They see this figure. It's dark and it's windy. The wind is blowing, which means the waves are tossing up and down. They're struggling to keep the boat on course. And lo and behold, they see this figure coming, walking at them, not from land, but from the water. I mean, my goodness. From the water. Matthew says this. They thought it was a ghost. It's where we get the English word phantom. The Greek word for ghost. We, 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 we call it phantom. And so that was their first initial response. And so they were really scared. And you go to the next verse. Verse 20, and he says, it is I. And the Greek there is often interpreted in other portions of John's gospel as I am. Which is a reference to I'm God. So here you have the disciples in a storm, afraid. And all of a sudden, and then thinking it was a ghost after him, a phantom, and they don't, you know, they're just struggling. And all of a sudden, God comes, comes along and says, I am. I'm here. Isn't that comforting? And as we read on, verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So then, verse 21, then they were willing to say, oh, oh, okay, come on board. It was a ghost, like, don't even come close to us. But when he spoke, they recognized, you see, the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice, don't they? So when, when Christ speaks, when God speaks, his children understand and know the truth. They know his voice. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the end of verse 21. There is another miracle going on. Look at the end of verse 21. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately, he got there, and all of a sudden, boom, they're on land. There's an implication here, clearly, of another miracle. Another sign that points to his deity. That's what all this is about. He's assuring over and over and over again with these signs that he is God. And he is sovereign over everything. Not only did he defy gravity by walking on the water, but he defied the laws of space and time. The God who created the laws of nature set them aside whenever he wants. He's over those laws. He made them. They're his to do as he pleases. Right? Let us never forget. Let's pause for a moment. Let's pause for a moment and never forget 
though Jesus is our Savior, though he will later on, and I think it's chapter 15, call us friends. He is no ordinary friend. He is not someone you just cuddle up to. To be his friend is nothing more than a privilege. We dare not forget that he is the sovereign creator of the universe. In all of nature, all the laws which he created bow down to him at his will. Even every man will. And every woman will. Let us never forget Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What do you think the sea is doing? What do you think the winds are doing right here in this story? What do you think the, the law is doing here of nature? The law of gravity and the defying of space and time. They are bowing to Jesus because he wanted to walk on water. How much more should the church, being redeemed, bow to the Lordship of Christ? How much more should we bow at the preaching of His Word, at the teaching of His Word, at devotions, when we have devotions? How much more should we meditate on the Scripture, even after we've walked away from them? Let us never forget, even though he calls us friend, he is no ordinary friend, but he is a sovereign of the universe. And even though he loves to walk with us, even though he, he is intimately acquainted with all of our ways, we must still bow before him and worship him as Lord. You have some modern preachers and teachers today saying he is just someone to cuddle up to. He's just a good buddy, a good friend. But if that's all you think he is, you understand him incompletely. Though he is, he is a lot more. Amen? Let's go next to the second point. Jesus warns of their motive for following him. First of all, he walks on the water. Second of all, he now warns the crowd for their motive for following him. So we learn not only about the nature of Christ in, in verses 16 through 21, we're now going to learn about the nature of man, 22 through 27. Now, the crowd was persistent. In verses 22 through 24, they recognized that he and his disciples had been gone. They're gone. They're looking for him. They're persistent. So the, they, too, got into the boats and followed him. And in verse 25, they found him. In 22, 23, 24, uh, John just gets a little bit detailed in in how they caught up with the disciples and Jesus, okay? They noticed uh, all the boats but one were gone. They noticed that he didn't go with them, but they noticed they were all gone, and so they hightailed it after him. They're seeking after Jesus. They're following him. They want more of him. Here we have a crowd seeking Jesus, but let's stop here for a minute. We've got to stop here for a minute. Here we have a crowd seeking Jesus. And it would seem on the surface that here are followers of Christ. That they are actual followers of the Savior. But then Romans 3.11 says there's none who seeks after God. 
What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that there's many people who on the outside look as if, and they actually are following after Christ, but they're following for the wrong motive. Wow. Just because we see someone going to church doesn't mean they're actually born again. Just because someone calls themselves a Christian or a follower of Christ, or they say, I seek him, doesn't necessarily mean it is genuine and true. Wow. How much does the church today need to hear that? The church has gotten, and I've heard this from other preachers, good sound teachers of the Word of God, from MacArthur to Sproul, who's in heaven now, okay? I mean, just good men, good, solid, biblical men. Alistair Begg, all these guys, they talk about how how evangelism, the church has gotten to such a point where evangelism doesn't just take place outside the church, but now it must take place inside the church. Here's a case in point. These people look like they would today, we would call them churchgoers. They even got in their boats. You know, the storm has obviously subsided. Now they're going to their boats and they're following Jesus. They went across the Sea of Galilee. By the naked eye, the first impression, one would think, wow, this is fantastic. Look at these people following Jesus. Man, this is church, man. It's, it's real, it's genuine, it's true. But you notice what Jesus says. He's not impressed. Wow. Verse 26. I'm calling you out. That's what he's saying. I'm calling you out. Notice, excuse me, notice verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He absolutely ignores the question. As to say, that does not matter. I'm going to call you out right now. Verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. Truly, truly. What I'm getting ready to say, I want you to, I don't want you to ever forget this. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. When you go fast forward to Romans chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says, there's none who seeks after God, there's none who seek for him with the right motive. Unless it's God that's make them alive unto Christ. You must be born again. Wow. It doesn't mean that they're true disciples just because someone is there at the event, at the feeding of the 5,000. I was there. I was there at the event. How many people go to church because the church has created an event for them to go to? Uh Uh-oh. Jesus ignores their questions and speaks sharply concerning their motives. One commentator wrote they were crass materialists. Another one wrote they were looking for a show. As in the feeding of the 5,000, do it again. Do something else really neat. We're here for a show. Entertain me. There's an element of that here. See, that's sort of this with people who want more signs. They're never satisfied with the entertainment. They're never satisfied with, that's not enough show. I want more. I want more. I want more. Uh, looking for a show, they, maybe they were looking for further satisfaction of their fleshly desires. 
of their physical needs, maybe even their emotional needs. And so a lot of churches will design a worship service to whip up the emotions to get them ready for worship. That is absolutely backwards. Here's the lesson. The church today should be very tremendously careful not to feed the fleshly appetites of man. Knowing that, knowing this, that his motives are misguided. Easily misguided. As the Galileans here, as this multitude, the, the, their motives were so easily misguided. Were on the surface, on the outside, it looked like they were actually following Jesus and they were physically, but they weren't with the right motives. They weren't doing it from the heart. A heart that's been changed. Therefore, we must not develop worship service or style that is care- centered upon the emotions, but centered on the truth. Centered upon Christ, not centered on the worshiper. Not focused on manipulating the mood or the environment, but of the renewing of the mind. Where emotions do not drive us to worship, but the truth drives us closer to Christ. Amen? That's why we like simple church. Lest a soul walks away as these Galileans did, and think that because they followed on the outside, because they crossed the sea, got in their boats, crossed the sea, sought after Jesus, they thought they were true followers of Christ. And we learn here that that's not necessarily the case. Verse 27, Jesus continues. He says this, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. He's still calling them out. He's saying, you're following me, you're seeking me, you worked hard in those boats getting across the sea because you wanted me to me to meet your physical needs. He did that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that was a sign. And what do signs do, by the way? You're in there taking your driver's test, you've got all these different signs. I mean, a literal sign, a stop sign. Okay, you got a stop sign coming up. It's pointing to what? A sign always points to something, right? So if you're driving on the road and you see a stop sign, or, you know, those ones that have little curvy things around, it's a sign that says, up ahead, you got to turn. But I'm just sitting there looking at the sign, admiring the sign. What's going to happen? <laughs> it's not about the sign does not exist for itself. That's the point here. The feeding of the 5,000 didn't exist for the sake of feeding 5,000, but it existed to show that if you want eternal life, you must come to Christ. Hence, he's going to move this into the bread of life sermon. I am the bread of life, he's going to say. You see where he's going? You see how he's captivated this crowd, and he's trying to bring them along in his teaching to show them, I know you're seeking signs. You're seeking me for the wrong motive. You're seeking me for what you can get out of me. You know, this is typical of the human nature, right? What, how will I benefit by going to church? Really? Is that what church has been reduced to? What I get out of it? How I could benefit? That's called a man-centered. It's, God, I'm going to church to be a sacrifice. I'm going to church because I want to give to you. I want to learn how to give more to you. And people typically think in America, money. That's just one small. He wants your heart. 
He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants to be Lord. If he's Lord of your heart, he'll be Lord of everything else. The wallet's just going to follow. The preaching of the word should always aim at the heart. So Jesus continues, do not work for the food that perishes. Do not be fixated on the food which might last you for a couple of hours and you're going to be hungry again. So Jesus is thinking, I mean, I have to do a sign every six hours to feed these people for the rest of their lives. Probably didn't think that, but that's the logic of it, right? That's the logic of it. Don't get in your boats and row over here to get more bread to fill yourselves with. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons. Instead, seek for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. How do we know? Look at the end of that verse. Because the Father has set his seal. He is the one the Father has authorized, who has given the authority to give eternal life. That's why Jesus in chapter 14, verse 6, is going to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among earth, on earth whereby one must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. So the Father has set his seal on him. That's how we know. That's how we know. Giving him the authority to give eternal. In other words, he's saying, me. You don't need me for the bread, the physical bread, that manna like back in the that only lasts for a couple of hours till you get hungry again. You need me for eternity. I'm the one that can give you bread that's going to last forever. And that bread, by the way, is me. So as God, through Moses, gave you manna back in the Old Testament, God, and that manna only lasted for hours. God has given you me, and that will last for all eternity. Amen? And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing. We're not literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but we are literally saying, hey, Christ, it's your, it's your body and your blood. It's you who gives me eternal life. And we're remembering what you gave in order for me to live forever with you. Communion is the gospel, right? He set his seal. And one cannot separate. And this tells me this. One cannot separate the gift of eternal life from the giver. Right? If you want eternal life, you must take Christ. People get lost here. It's very dangerous for a lost person here to, to go that direction. They want eternal life like this crowd, but they want it without Christ. But let me pause for a moment and relate that to us. Oh, how tempting it is for me and you over time, even as Christians, for the believer, for us to fall in more in love with the gifts than the giver. I learned this years ago from an old dead Puritan. And he gave an illustration about a patient who was sick and the nurse who was helping him. Okay? An illustration 
paraphrasing goes like this. The patient's in bed and he's got a disease and he's real sick. Okay. In order to stay alive, the nurse had to give him medication. After a while, the patient began to appreciate the medication more than the one who was given him the medication. He forgot that without the nurse, I will never survive. Sometimes we get like that with Christians. He goes on to say, when God knows our heart better than anybody else, he's intimate with our ways. When he sees his child in that going in that direction or in that condition, he will for a time suspend those graces, those gifts, in order to get his child's attention back on him. Wow. Hallelujah. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful illustration? I thought that was just beautiful. Well, let's go on to the third one. We're going relatively fast, so I can slow down. <laughs> Jesus describes the work of God. Here we learn about the nature of faith. And 30, and my goodness, I'm just saying wrong names and everything. 28 and 29. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They don't get it. Notice that. They really still don't quite get it, do they? And notice the works plural. What all do we have to do that we may work the works of God? It's kind of like we also learn a bit about nature, man. We want to do what you're doing. Can we do what you're doing? What can we do to do these same things? This goes back to Genesis 3. The sinner wants to be kind of like God or to be God, right? That's part of our sin nature. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Remember, that word is plural. Man asks for what he naturally looks for, the result of his own efforts. Pull up your bootstraps. Make yourself a better person. Well, well, yeah, I can see how it has place in the world, like on a job or something like that. Work harder. Yeah, But this is the context of eternal life. That doesn't work over here with eternal life, right? But man asks for what he naturally looks for. He asks, what kind of works can I do? So with my own efforts so that I can be saved. But Jesus reminds them that obtaining eternal life is God's work. It's God's work. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice Jesus responds with the singular form of work. The singular form. They're using what works, and Jesus says, But the work of God, singular. One of two things is going on here. Either he's making a word play on their use of the terms works, and therefore in a sense saying the work God requires of men is faith, or he's saying that the act of faith itself is the work of God. Hmm. I like the latter. It fits chapter 1, chapter 3, and what he's going to say in chapter 6 a little bit better. Let me qualify what I mean by that, because it's going to lead to further application and observation. 
He's saying that the act of faith itself is the work of God. You're, in other words, you're considered about what you're doing. What works can you do? It's not about you and your works. It's about God's work of redemption. It's about his work through me, Jesus is trying to explain to them. Oh, it's something we do. We, we, faith is an action of the sinner, right? It's something we do. But something takes place before that happens. Please go with me to chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Chapter 1 and 12, I want to show you something here. The Greek is so precise. It's, it, when it gets so precise, it, very, it clears up issues. Okay? Verse 12 of chapter 1. That as many as received him, that's an action. And actually the verb is active. It's something that the subject actually, that we, they receive. The sinner receives Christ. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. Receiving in the beginning of verse 12 and believing in his name are parallel, okay? Referring to the same thing, it's, it's, it's conversion when one trusts Christ. Now, that's active. The verb is active. When you receive and you believe, that's something that that sinner is actively doing. But notice verse 13. Who? Is your first word in verse 13 who? Who is the who? The who is the people in the previous verse 12. That's who that who is talking about. Are you with me? They were, they were born. Not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. Were born is a verb and it's passive. That when God does a work on the sinner, the sinner therefore responds by faith. So in verse 12, you have an active verb of us receiving and us believing, us trusting. But in verse 13, where you're born, those people who are the ones doing the receiving and the believing in verse 12 are those who've been born by God, verse 13. Without verse 13, you don't have verse 12. So no wonder when you get to chapter 3 and you have Nicodemus approaching Jesus, Jesus' lesson for him is you must be born again. And that Greek word born in chapter 3 is the exact same Greek word in chapter 1. And why would he say that to Nicodemus? Because Nicodemus represented all of those who relied on works, their own self-righteousness, their own goodness to get to heaven. Why is this important? I beg the question. And I can come up with 20 reasons, but I want to give you five. Number one, it best coincides. This interpretation, by the way, of chapter 6, it's not that the first one's all that bad. I'm not saying that, okay? It's just I prefer this one for these reasons. And here are the applications In other words, verse 29, this is the work of God. God's work is working so that we would believe. God's working so that we would believe, okay? And that work is the redemptive work of Christ. That work is is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That work is the preaching of his word. God is doing all those works to make someone alive unto himself. 
First, it best coincides and complements the truth in chapter 3 that one must be born again. One doesn't make a decision and then all of a sudden gets born again. God doesn't look at the sinner and go, Ron, you you chose my son, you did a great job. Okay, now I'll make you alive to my son. It just doesn't make sense. Right? Yeah. Number two, it eliminates all forms of boasting. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, we got a problem with this church. Well, actually, there's no church without problems. This one just had a little bit more than others. The church at Corinth. Bless their hearts. <laughs> we'll start early on in chapter 1 to kind of give you the context of where we're going here. Oh, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there is no divisions among you. Number one, he's, he's addressing divisions are happening in the church. He has some people like Chloe and the people that reported to him, hey, Brother Paul, back home church in Corinth, we got some major issues. One of them is there's people divided over all sorts of stuff. Some people following Peter, some, see, you know, some John, some are so, so piety, so pietistic. They say, well, we're following Jesus. And some are saying, I follow Paul. They're taking sides. Based on what? Probably baptism. Notice in uh, verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, I followed Peter because he baptized me. Apollos because he baptized me. You know, so I'm going to side with him. Not only that, look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. In other words, I'm going to follow him because I like his personality better than this guy's. He's much more, his sermons are so much more polished than Paul's. Hello. Just make sure the truth is preached. So I think those might be some reasons why that, well, behind what was causing the divisions here. So let's fast forward in this chapter a little bit. Go to verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. We keep the message simple. The message of the gospel simple. Hey, sinners, you need to repent and turn to Christ. You need to stop relying on all the good things that you think you're doing. If you think they're good enough to get you to heaven, I'm not talking just you need to repent from all your sins, from all those bad things you're doing, your swearing, your drugs, your drinking, uh, your, your lust and all that stuff. Not just, But you need to also repent from the good things that you're relying upon to be a good person before God. You need to repent of it all. So we preach Christ crucified. And, and, and here's why. Because of all the bad things you do, it corrupts all the good things you do, and God desires holiness. Perfect righteousness to be in his presence. He demands it. And there's no human that could ever provide that for themselves or for another. There's only one, Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness to get you to heaven. So that's what Paul's talking about here. And in the context, he's saying the Greeks think this is just foolishness. They just think it's foolishness, right? That's what he's saying here. The Greeks look at this gospel message we're preaching, and they just think it's foolishness. Oh, it's a crutch for you Christians. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, whatever. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that is a calling to salvation in the immediate context. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
whether it would be Paul, Peter, Cephas, or anybody. They're not saved because of their wisdom. They're not saved because of their might. They're not saved because of any nobility that they might have. Verse 27, now listen to this. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of this world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? 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 Verse 29, so that no man may what? Boast before the Lord. When I share the gospel, I never boast that I made the right decision. I boast in my Savior who died for me. Look at verse 30. Boy, this just sums it up now, folks. But by his doing, who's his? God's doing. Because of God's doing. Because of God's work. You are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us. Our eyes were open. We looked down to Christ because God opened up our eyes we see that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, the power of God unto salvation, and nobody else. And He is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. So that just as it is written, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Okay, first, I like this interpretation of John six twenty nine because it best coincides and complements the truth that you must be born again in chapter 3. Second of all, it eliminates all forms of boasting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Number three, it produces humility, a humbleness in the life of the believer. Obviously, if it, ha- if it deals with boasting, it's going to have the positive, that's the negative, it's going to have the positive effect of it. It's very humbling, isn't it? But that humbleness is a characteristic that spills over into number four. We will have a greater sense of the miraculous power of our conversion. In other words, salvation is the greatest miracle that there is since the resurrection of Christ. It's a miracle that I'm saved. It's a miracle that I'm standing before you preaching God's word. It's a miracle that I even care about the church. It's, a mir- it's miraculous because God had to change me from the inside out. If it, if, if it wasn't for him saving my soul, I would not be here. I would not care about you. I would not love you. That is the bottom line. So I give him all the glory. That's what this means. Number three, the, the humbleness also spills over to number five, not just four, a greater sense of miraculous power of conversion and that humility, but number five, a greater sensitivity and compassion and mercy for the lost. Of whom I was once part of. The only difference between me and that atheist is the grace of God. The only difference between me and that person living in lusts or that homosexual or that transgender, let's just call it what it is, because those are the things today we have to deal with. The only difference between me and them is the grace of God. It's not because I'm a better person. It's because God is a great God. And his son is the redeemer. 
Jesus Christ. That's why this is important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, theology matters, doctrine matters, the exposition of your word matters because it shapes the character and the attitude of our hearts one to another, first towards you, second of all, one to another in the church, and then thirdly, towards those that are lost in this world. So God, may, may the truths of your word, may this doctrine, this teaching of Christ be like pressure points on my heart. It pushes, puts pressure I'm the, he's, you are the potter, God. I'm just clay. And so, and so put pressure on areas of my life that, that this truth will change me, conform my attitude into Christ's attitude, make my love his love, my, my humility his humility. God, I want to be submissive to his lordship because I want to be used by you, used by you. What an honor to be called your friend. What an honor to be used by you. But most important, you are the one we bow down to because you are the sovereign of this universe. In Jesus, you are the beauty of the Father's eyes. It's in your name we pray. Amen.